Welcome to the Monday Morning Pastor Podcast. I am your host, Doug Moister, with the ever-talented co-host, Bob Hyatt. Bob, good to see you. Good to see you as well. Uh, ever-talented, that's an interesting combination. Like, yes. it, are, are, are there times when you're not talented? Oh, man. From like, basically from the hour of 3 p.m. to about 7 p.m., I'm about as untalented <laughs> as they get. <laughs> it's like my battery reading goes from like, yeah, I don't know, maybe in the morning I'm at about 30% and then it just shuts down after about three. See, so. for me, I feel like it's always, it's all always there, but it's like, you catch me at the wrong time and you're just going to get that buffering, just buffering, <laughs> buffering. And there it is. <laughs> there it is. Okay. Takes me a little longer to come up with, with the answer or whatever. Hey, just, uh, I think it was yesterday or the day before I was on Facebook and, um, you know, scrolling as you do the different little reels and stuff that came up. And, and, uh, one of the things that came up was, uh, a clip from this movie about this, guy lee strobel uh as a journalist uh trying to disprove the resurrection of christ and he was talking with this this scientist in this clip and everything and and that was so fascinating to me because one i'd never actually seen the movie i knew it existed um i can't i couldn't even tell you the name of it right now but two i knew we were about to talk to lee strobel on this very podcast and I'll tell you what, the guy in the movie did not have the cool Chicago accent like the real Lee Strobel did. <laughs> yeah, I think as soon as we got done, you were like, I was just waiting for him to talk about the bears and doubles. doubles. <laughs> yeah, it was we had a Doug, we had a great conversation with this guy, yeah. but like neither one of us were anticipating uh, just how upbeat and joyful this guy was. Yeah, I it's like you you hear ex journalist and you think oh he's probably kind of somber serious you know uh, right. to the point but no this guy was just he was uh, effusive yeah that whoa that's a bit that's not a see if 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 you were not uh, ever talented you would not have been <laughs> able to use a word like effusive that was good uh, yeah Bob I, I again I, I I remember reading Case for Christ. Uh, when I was a, a new Christian and just really being impacted by uh, just, yeah, the, the, like the interview, the questions, like what he was doing. I just remember it being such a deeply impactful book. And in my brain, I just pictured someone a lot more serious, um, like, and maybe more like Barbara Walters in some ways. But I feel like what was so encouraging was uh, there's just such an excitement about who he is and, and the way that he talks about the gospel and about evangelism yeah. and apology. I'm like, I want to, I want to tell someone about Jesus right now. It was just so, <laughs> so it was so encouraging. It was, it was, it was so encouraging. It was. Well, Hey, w w let's, let's not, let's not make the listeners wait any longer. Let's, let's, uh, let's get into this conversation with Lee Strobel. Today is Lee Strobel, and he has a new book out called Is God Real? Lee Strobel, you may have known from many of his books, uh, The Case for Christ, The Case for Easter, 
and others. Lee, it is a pleasure to speak with you. Well, thanks. Great to be with you guys. I appreciate what you do to help pastors. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, it's it's always enjoyable. We uh, we are recording this one on a Monday. We don't often do that uh, because Mondays are tough. Yes. <laughs> and that's that's why we do the Monday morning fast. Now you're Monday. telling me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know that many of our listeners will know who you are, but for those who might not, can you just tell us a little bit about your story, about coming to faith and where that's taken you since then? Sure. Um, I was an atheist for much of my life. My background's in journalism and law. I was a legal ed uh, editor of the Chicago Tribune newspaper and uh, married a woman uh, who was my high school sweetheart. We just had, by the way, our 51st wedding anniversary. Congrats. Oh, wow. And uh, met when we were 14 years old. And um, she was an agnostic, I would say, kind of spiritually confused. She met a neighbor who shared Jesus with her, took her to church, and came to me finally and gave me the worst news an atheist husband could get. She said, I've decided to become a Christian. And I, the first word that went through my mind was divorce. Mm. I was going to walk out. Um, but then I thought maybe I could rescue her from this cult that she's gotten involved in. And uh, even as a skeptic, I recognize that the whole cornerstone of the faith is the resurrection of Jesus, because Jesus clearly made transcendent and messianic and divine claims about himself. And But anybody can do that. But if he did that and died and then returned three days later, that's pretty good evidence he's telling the truth. So I decided to take my journalism training and legal training and systematically investigate uh, the evidence, not just for the resurrection, but also the reliability of scripture and science and faith and so forth, philosophy of religion. And I spent two years doing that until November the 8th of 1981, uh, when I sat down and kind of reviewed all the evidence. And then I sat back and I said to myself, you know, in light of this avalanche of evidence that points so powerfully toward the truth of Christianity, it would take more faith to maintain my atheism than to become a Christian. And uh, that's when I kind of reached my verdict in the case for Christ, that uh, this is true. And uh, that's when I repented of my sin, received forgiveness through Christ, and uh, became a, a follower of Jesus. And um, my life began to change in many, many ways. And ultimately, I left my journalism career and took a 60% pay cut to uh, join the staff of a local church and spend the best days of my life uh, sharing Jesus uh, with other people. And um, that's kind of the, the short version of uh, how I got where I am. That's awesome. And your your newest book, Is God Real? Uh, did this come about differently than your previous books? Yeah, it really did. You know, normally I'm a writer. That's what I do. And so uh, I'll usually come to the publisher. I feel like God's put something in my heart to write about and I'll kind of pitch it to them and We'll pray about it and think about it, and maybe we'll do it, maybe we won't. But, um, but they came to me for the first time and said, our tech people have noticed something unusual. I said, what? I said, we've detected that 200 times a second around the clock, someone on planet Earth is typing into a computer search engine basically the question, is God real? And I thought, oh my gosh, if there's that much curiosity, if there's that much um, interest in this question. I'm just going to, why don't I do a book called Is God Real? And I'll build a case from science, from history, from philosophy for God being real. But then let's deal with the two toughest questions. If God is real, then why is there suffering? And if God is real, why does he seem so hidden? And so that's what I did. And uh, I'm thrilled with the results because my, my hope is this is kind of a one-stop shop for folks who want to 
understand why we believe what we believe and to deepen their faith, but also to motivate them to share Christ with others. And then it's a book you can give away. Um, I mean, my fondest hope is that Christians read the book, uh, it deepens their faith, and then they give the book away uh, to someone they meet or a relative or a friend or um, a neighbor or a colleague at work, a fellow student or someone who's spiritually curious. And um, so the gospel is in it and the evidence is in it. And uh, I just pray that God's going to use it for his glory. And I think what's so what's so unique about the book is there's all these beautiful interviews that you yeah. that you had an opportunity to have these incredible yes. conversations with. Um, you know, I'm I'm thinking about uh, one of the first interviews that is in the book. You're talking about uh, you know it, the, the 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 potential for a creator, right? So yes. tell us a little bit yes. just about that interview and and what yeah. things kind of went through your head as you were sitting across the table and and yeah, just the yeah. questions and. You know, one of the joys I have, uh, my ministry is to kind of be a conduit from the academic world to the everyday world. So I'm not a scholar. I'm not an academic. Um, I'm a journalist. And so I'm comfortable going to people who are brilliant and have PhDs from Cambridge and major universities and just asking them questions that everyday people would have and that I have as a skeptic as I was or, um, you know, kind of put myself back in that mindset. And then to translate that into everyday language that people can understand. If I can understand it, anybody can understand it. So I, kind of, I write my books as a, a way to kind of popularize uh, these um, brilliant, brilliant academics who can't seem to write on that level. So um, I get to meet incredible folks. And uh, the first interview in the book, I believe, is uh, with William Lane Craig, who's got two earned PhDs and is probably one of the greatest defenders of the faith in the world. And um, um, so I talked to him about what he has popularized, which is the Kalam cosmological argument for the existence of God, which interestingly has its roots in medieval Islamic theology, um, because Islam also believes in the beginning of the universe. And uh, in the Middle Ages, there was an um, Islamic philosopher who first formulated this argument. Now the argument's ever more relevant because virtually every scientist in the world, based on discoveries in the last 50 years, now is convinced that the universe did have a beginning. And so that leads to the argument, whatever begins to exist has a cause. We now know the universe began to exist at some point in the past. Therefore, there must be a cause for the universe. And then you just, you just uh, analyze, well, okay, well, what kind of a cause can bring a universe into existence? It must be transcendent because it was separate from creation. Must be spirit or immaterial because it existed before the physical world. Must be eternal or timeless because it existed before physical time came into being. Must be powerful given the immensity of the creation event. Must be smart given the precision of the creation event. Must be personal because I had to make the decision to create. Must be creative because look at the beauty of the universe. Must be caring or loving because he created such an incredible habitat for us to flourish in. And then the scientific principle of Occam's razor would say that there would be just one creator. So you, you look at that and you go, wait a minute, transcendent, spirit, eternal, powerful, smart, personal, creative, caring, unique. That's a description of the God of the Bible. So it's amazing how just this one area, cosmology, the origin of the universe, can go a long way toward uh, making the case that, yes, God is real. That's pretty. That that's that's a wonderful encapsulation of what is some <laughs> some very big thoughts. Yeah, right. I'm just trying to drink that in for a second. Yeah. I know. Um, 
J- just maybe a little bit of a diversion here. I, as you look at the landscape, I know yeah. maybe a decade ago, the new atheists were all the rage. Yeah. And I just haven't heard much about that lately. Yeah. Do you, wh- what is, what's happening out there in terms of this, of not even just Christianity, but theism and atheism? It, yeah. It, is, is atheism still ascendant? Is, do you see any shift in the culture? Yeah, it's a great question. Justin Brierley, who's a friend of mine who did that great uh, radio show in England called uh, Unbelievable, uh, interviewing scholars and so forth. Uh, he's just come out with a book arguing that the age of the new atheist is done. It's mm-hmm. gone. And, you know, what the new atheists did, they recycle a lot of arguments that had already been refuted by uh, theists uh, through the centuries. And I think that has finally caught up with them. Mm-hmm. And um, if you, for instance, watch the debate between one of the one of the four horsemen of the uh, new um, atheist, uh, Christopher Hitchens, between him and William Lane Craig, who I just mentioned at Biola University a few years ago. Uh, I mean, there was no contest. In fact, um, if I can do this from memory, the atheist commentator from that debate, this is the atheist evaluation of the debate between the Christian William Lane Craig and the atheist Christopher Hitchens. He said, quote, um, the Christian, William Lane Craig, spanked Christopher Hitchens like a foolish child. <laughs> that's, that's the atheist evaluation of that debate. So uh, this is what has happened. I mean, the, you know, the emperor has no clothes. Um, the, the claims and, and assertions of the new atheists, I think, have just kind of fallen by the wayside largely uh, in light of the counterarguments by theists. Uh, now, having said that, I think what this has done is that it has emboldened young people to take the label of atheist. Um, hmm. You know, when I was an atheist years and years ago, back in the 70s and 80s, um, you didn't talk about that. That was like claiming to be a pedophile. Hmm. I mean, you didn't, you, you didn't advertise the fact you were an atheist. It was embarrassing in that culture to be an atheist. Um, now, um, you look at Generation Z. And in Generation Z, twice as many young people call themselves atheists as in my generation. So mm. you have people using that phrase, but do they really understand that? I think it's more of a skepticism, and yeah. they're more willing to adopt that nomenclature um, than previous generations. But I don't think it means that they've thought it through any more thoroughly. And, um, you know, it's pretty easy to get a, an atheist to downshift to say, well, actually, I guess I'm agnostic. Um, Because frankly, you'd have to be God to be an atheist, so to speak. You'd have to know everything to know that there is no God. (laughs) There's a lot of arguments that cause people to concede fairly quickly that they're really agnostics. But um, I I think skepticism has become popular. Atheism has become popular. It's almost become a default position among some young people. And uh, and that's okay. I, I would rather a young person say they're an atheist, then claim they're a Christian when they're not. And back in my day, people would claim to be Christians who were not Christians. And um, I, I think that's a harder audience to reach. I'd rather reach someone who says, I've got, I've got doubts. I've got skepticism. Great. Let's talk about it. Um, rather than someone who kind of papers over that and pretends like they're kind of a cultural Christian. Well, it's interesting because in your introduction, you know, we, we you, you kind of talk about the spiritual landscape and and what we're currently facing, and yeah. and it looks pretty bleak. I mean, it doesn't in a lot of it ways. doesn't look. But you you had this great line. You just said, "I I find myself optimistic." Why? Yes. Why are you optimistic? Well, 
You know, that's a great question. I, I Because the numbers, as you say, if you look at when I met my wife in 1966, uh, 98% of American adults believed in God. They believe God is real. Now that number's down to 81%. That's the lowest in American history. And if you ask people, are you sure that God exists? It's down to 60%. Um, so you go, okay, well, that's not good. <laughs> and yet you do other surveys and you find that three out of four American adults say that they want to grow spiritually. And 44% of American adults say, uh, I'm more open to God today than I was before the pandemic. And then you talk to people like um, uh, Shane Pruitt. Uh, Shane's a friend of mine. He travels the country and talks to college audiences and high school audiences. And he told me, he said, over the last two years, I've seen more young people come to faith in Christ than in the previous 18 years combined. So something's going on. And I think there is, you know, especially for Generation Z, who has been hit by loneliness and by confusion and by um, uh, skepticism. And so, um, you know, you get down, you, when you're flat on your back, the only way to look up is up, you know, so to speak. And um, so I think the, when, when you look at the study by the Centers of Disease Control that came out this year, it showed that 60% of Generation Z are suffering from, you know, loneliness, extreme loneliness and so forth. And, and 25% of, of women in Generation Z have, have started to create a suicide plan, 25%. So um, Greg Steer, who's another youth minister who is a friend of mine, said, you know, Generation Z is flat on its back. Um, uh, it, it's full of loneliness. It's full of confusion and so forth. And he said, you know what, frankly, this is an opportunity for the gospel to come in and show there is hope. There is um, uh, a cure for our, uh, our angst and our loneliness and it is found through Jesus. Mm-hmm. So I have, I'm still optimistic. I, I, I still see young people coming to faith. I love that. And I think it, it probably really works well with the work that you've instilled in the Center for Evangelism and Applied Apologetics. Um, so mm. tell me about how that work that you're doing at the yeah. school is really sort of feeding into yeah. the optimism and even some opportunities for churches to even take hold of some of these yeah. opportunities. Yeah, um, I gathered together 40 PhDs uh, with, uh, who also have practical experience in evangelism and apologetics. And we created 91 courses, fully online, fully accredited, where people can get a degree in evangelism or apologetics um, um, from Colorado Christian University at our center there. Um, we get a master's degree, get a bachelor's degree. But what I'm most excited about is we also created several dozen certificate courses. These are courses, first of all, they're incredibly inexpensive. And um, they're for people that don't want another degree, but they'd like to learn. So we have four different tracks. Uh, you can study in innovative evangelism. You can study in world religions. You can study in uh, applied apologetics, or you can study in cultural apologetics. And if you take five of these classes um, at your own pace, all online, you get a certificate kind of confirming you completed this course of study. So we hope to equip churches um, to be ever more effective at being strong salt and bright light in the 21st century. Through a couple of things. Number one, we believe every church, regardless of their size, needs to have an evangelism point person, full-time in a big church, part-time in a smaller church, volunteer in an even smaller church, who is under the direction of the senior pastor, who is, a, uh, who is the point person for reaching that community with the gospel. 
And we want to train that person on how to do that. And so that's what we do at our center. One of the people we're training, by the way, I don't think he'd mind me saying this, is uh, Willie Robertson from Duck Dynasty, um, who has volunteered at his church uh, there in West Monroe, Louisiana, to be the evangelism point person. And we've trained him on how to do that. And they have had an explosion of people coming to faith at that church. He sent me a text message one day and, and told me, that this was in March, I think, of, of last year. He said, we've had more people come to faith in the first three months of this year than all of last mm-hmm. year. He said, um, we're baptizing so many people. He said, these aren't kids, the babies. These are adults who are coming to faith. And, and, uh, and then about an hour passed, and I got another text from him, and he said, we just baptized three more. This is so much fun. <laughs> so we believe in this role of an evangelism point person in the church, and, and our center can train people how to do that. So if a pastor says, well, gosh, I got a layperson in my church, he'd be perfect for that kind of role. We'll train him for you. Let him be a volunteer. Let him do what Willie Robertson's doing. And then the other innovation we have courses on that people can take and learn how to do are what we call spiritual discovery groups. These are small groups for non-believers. And I tell you, they are gangbusters, especially among young people who like to talk about what they believe and what they don't believe. And so we experimented with these in Chicago, and we got... um, um, 1,100 non-believers into these groups, which, by the way, is surprisingly easy to get people to join these groups. People love these groups. So we had 1,100 non-believers, and we tracked them for a period of years. And what we found is if a young person or any person joins one of these groups and stays in it, 80% come to faith in Christ. Where do you get an 80% conversion rate? And these, these groups, anybody can lead these groups. You think, oh, you got to be an apologist. No, no, no. We train you how not to answer tough questions. We train you how to ask more questions and how to lead a person into an aha moment when they understand the gospel and so forth. And so my wife, who is um, very introverted, uh, her ministry, she's not an evangelist, her ministry or an apologist, her ministry is mainly one-on-one mentoring with young believers. That's what she does. But she started one of these groups in her neighborhood. Um, and we found that every woman she invited to this group said yes. Hmm. Why? Because they trust her and they know her. And she said, hey, on Tuesday afternoon, um, while the kids are in school, um, at one o'clock, we're going to get together at my house and talk about God. And everyone said, oh, I'd love to do that. Uh, one woman said, um, yeah, I grew up Catholic. We never opened the Bible. I'd love to, I'd like to know what's in it. <laughs> and so uh, she had a tremendously successful group. Um, we often see 100% of these groups come to faith. Um, I was talking to a guy in Los Angeles who has these groups flourishing in his church. And uh, I said to him, what percentage of people in these groups at your church come to faith? And he said, oh, I don't understand your question. I said, well, okay, if a non-believer joins a group and stays in it, how many are coming to faith in Christ? And he said, I don't know what you mean. And I, I said it again. And he said, oh, oh, I get what you're asking. No, no, no. All of them come to faith. We've never had someone not come to faith in our groups. So I think these are gangbusters. And so in our certificate courses, we'll train people how to, how to do these groups. And they can go at their own pace, fully online, learn how to be a leader of these groups. And what a great thing for a pastor to get up and if they're going to do a, um, a, a message to lead people to faith, to say, you know what, I'm going to pray a prayer in a minute. And if you're ready to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, 
I'm going to give you that opportunity. But some of you aren't there yet. Some of you have questions. Some of you have doubts. You know what? We have groups um, where you can join half a dozen other people just like you who are spiritually curious, led by a Christian couple, and you go on a journey together. And, and I believe you'll find answers to your questions. Um, what a great thing to have kind of that two-tier invitation. You know, for those that aren't quite ready yet, here's an opportunity, knowing that 80% will come to faith. And then for those that are ready, then you can do a prayer to re- uh, help them come into the kingdom. Mm-hmm. So I'm gangbusters over these groups. Our, our curriculum was designed by Gary Poole, who's the world's leading authority on these groups. He wrote a book called Seeker Small Groups years ago that explains how to do these groups. And that's another great resource. But anyway, I'm pumped about the future, uh, you know. Um, um, I, I love the local church. I love to see churches that are prioritizing um, evangelism and apologetics. And um, um, nothing warms my heart more than I, I just did a, a, a spoke at a church in Dallas. We had 114 people come to faith. And uh, as an evangelist, nothing's more exciting than that to me. Yeah. so cool. I I wonder too, I mean, you've, you've been in the world of apologetics for, you know, the better half for for your whole ministry. How, how have you noticed apologetics shift and change? And like, what's Mm. the landscape now for apologetics in the church? Yeah. I think the need for apologetics is greater than ever. Mm. I was talking to a guy, he's a grandfather, had a six-year-old granddaughter who was going to public school and he said she was on the playground at recess, and the other kids were taunting her and making fun of her because she believes in God. Oh, you still believe in fairy tales. You still believe in make-believe. I mean, our kids and our grandkids are going to be challenged in their faith in a way that older generations were not. We need to prepare them to understand not just what we believe, but why we believe it. And that's why I wrote this book, Is God Real?, to help parents be able to mentor their kids in understanding these issues so that they can articulate why this is not make-believe in fairy tale, but why it makes sense to believe that God is real. Um, so I think apologetics is ever more urgent and relevant uh, in a culture that's increasingly skeptical and even hostile toward the culture. Mm-hmm. I think, though, Doug, as you said, um, there have been shifts. Uh, we're seeing more emphasis on cultural issues. That way, that's the reason we have a cultural track in our training through our center. Um, uh, you know, questions like um, um, same-sex marriage and abortion and so forth are, are ones that are often flashpoints um, and and points. What I call spiritual sticking points for people who you know holding them up from their journey toward Christ. So we need to address those in a loving and gentle and respectful way that First Peter three fifteen tells us to. And, um, but, uh, but I think, um, uh, you know, I'm seeing so much interest because, for instance, just yesterday, I, I spoke at a church here in Denver and um, I said, uh, hey, uh, I've got some advanced copies of my new book is, uh, and um, I'd be glad to sign one. Maybe you have a, a friend or a, a, a child that's walked away from the faith. I'll, I'll put a little note in it. And by the way, all the proceeds from the book sales go to the church. I always do that. And so, um, you know, 400 people came up and said, um, um, you know, I'd like to get a book. And, and my son went away to college and, you know, he, he, was, he, went, he was involved in the youth ministry at our church. And then he goes to college and now he's a skeptic. Now he says he's an atheist. And I just put a little note and encourage them to 
check out the, the evidence in the book and so forth. But I'm seeing so much of this. And I, and I encourage them and say, look, as a parent, first, don't freak out when this happens. Secondly, keep praying for them. Third, keep seeking opportunities to point them in the right direction. But have some patience. Um, you know, uh, generally, people who have been trained in the faith will often return to the faith. And yet, you know, it, it, the pattern in previous generations had been, okay, people uh, were raised in the church, they go off to college, they become skeptical, but then they get married, and then they have kids, and then they come back to the church. Well, the problem with that now is, number one, we're seeing more cultural pressure for people to push them away from the church. The Secular Student Alliance, which is an organization of atheist ministries, is now in 400 college and high school campuses. They want nothing more than to push your kid away from their faith. So that's a new phenomenon that doesn't bode well. Um, secondly, people are getting married later than they used to. And so they'd be away from the church more longer than they were in the past. Um, so there's some things that are going on that that are impediments. But um, again, I think it, it means that we need apologetics ever more in the local church. And um, that's why when you say there should be a point person in the church for evangelism, that person needs to be trained in apologetics. Mm. Um, I remember when we were in Chicago years and years ago, we had a volunteer and uh, he, we made him the head of our apologetics ministry because he was very on fire for that. And um, he did a great job. And today, these years later, he not only has a PhD, um, he's one of the most prominent um, uh, Christian philosophers in the world, uh, has written like 20 books. He's written five books on the problem of evil alone. I mean, um, but this was somebody who was just a volunteer in a local church. And, and we need to be searching for these people who can lead the charge. The pastor can't do it all. He can't do it all. He's got too many pressures in too many areas. He needs someone in the church as a volunteer or staff member who's going to lead that charge under his direction and create, you know, he's going to, this person is going to harness the apologists and evangelists in the church. This person is going to train 100% of the congregation on how to naturally and effectively share their faith. And this person is going to be, stay up late at night praying about what, what ministries can we create? What events might we create? What special weekends might we create to, encourage people to come into the church and to come to our events to hear the gospel and to receive it from gifted evangelists like the senior pastor. So um, I, 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 I'm, I'm hopeful that churches are kind of catching this vision. Yeah. I, just the other day, I was, uh, I was coaching with a, a pastor who felt like um, they hadn't heard from God in a while. Mm. Uh, and I know that you had mentioned that, that this idea of the hiddenness of God or God's yeah. silence is, is something that you deal with in this book. Yeah. Uh, what did, what did you discover? How, how would you encourage those who might be listening that maybe it seems like it's been a little bit since they've heard the voice of God? What, yeah. what did you discover and how, how might you encourage them? Yeah, and you know, this is an impediment to a lot of spiritual seekers. Um, John Steingart, who was the uh, front man for Hawk Nelson, the Christian rock group, famously walked away from the faith in um, 2020 because of the silence of God, the hiddenness mm -hmm. of God. And, and um, we're seeing, this has now become the number two objection that nonbelievers make. Uh, mm -hmm. First is suffering, and second is hiddenness of God. And so I interviewed a, an expert on this, a philosopher, and uh, gave some great answers. And one of the things he said, he kind of likened it to um, 
uh, baseball. He said, uh, you know, in baseball, you have a pitcher and a catcher. And he said, uh, you know, it, it, when we look at the hiddenness of God, especially when it's involving uh, bringing people into the kingdom, he said, um, you know, the pitcher is God and the catcher is us. He said, where does the problem lie? Does it really lie with the pitcher or does it lie with the catcher? And he says, biblically speaking, I think it lies with the catcher. You know, Romans uh, 1 verse 20 says that we have evidence from nature. So there's so much evidence that God is real, um, that we're without excuse. And yet our tendency as sinners is to suppress that. In fact, the Greek imagery there of suppressing it is that our awareness of God begins to rise and we push it down like a pedal Hmm. on a car. We push it down. And then it became, the awareness of God tends to rise again, and we push it down again and again and again, and we tend to um, 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 suppress that and, and walk the other way from God. And so I think we have to ask people who, are, who raise this objection, who are nonbelievers, to say, you know, um, are, are you looking for a God who's going to meet your criteria before you'll hear his voice, before you'll encounter him? Um, uh, or are you saying, I'll come to you um, based on my preconditions. Uh, if you tolerate this pattern of sin in my life, then yeah, 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 then I'll, I'll come to you. So there are reasons that I think people tend to suppress the, the evidence for God. And um, I think as well, um, we can look at um, uh, history um, where God made his, his uh, appearance uh, obvious, like when he was uh, guiding the Israelites through uh, the desert or when he was parting the Red Sea. And what could be more obvious than that? And then what happened? The Israelites fell back into apostasy. So why would we think we'd be any different today if God wrote in the sky, I am real, I am here, come to me? Um, you know what? I think a lot of people would say, oh, that's special effects. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's uh, that's artificial <laughs> intelligence. They figured out a way to kind of project that into the sky. I mean, we'll find excuses to walk away from God. Um, if if God is omniscient, if He knows all, He knows where the line is drawn on how much of Himself to expose to us without violating our free will. Um, where that line is drawn, because He walks a, He walks a tightrope. Um, if He is too hidden then, um, you know, can we really find him? If he makes himself too obvious, it can take away our free will. Um, because to encounter God, look at Jeremiah. I mean, to encounter God is like, whoa, Nelly, you know? Um, uh, so uh, if he is omniscient, he would know the exact proportion of awareness he should make his, his, himself known so that the maximum number of people will come into the kingdom of God. Because the goal is not to convince people that he exists. That's not the goal. The goal is that they would bend the knee to him, receive forgiveness through Christ, and, and, and enter into the kingdom of God as a, as a forgiven uh, sinner. And um, so it's not just that we want people to know that God exists. That's not really the issue. The issue is, are we going to respond to him? Are we going to receive the gospel? Are we going to repent and um, uh, um, receive his grace? So there's a lot to this question. And then, you know, as you say, what about those of us who are believers and, and the hiddenness of God? Um, when we, you know, for instance, I was uh, on, the, on my deathbed um, about 11 years ago. Uh, um, doctor looked at me and said, you're one step away from a coma, two steps away from dying. And I, I hovered between life and death for several days. And uh, 
would I have liked Jesus to walk into the room and hold my hand and <laughs> encourage me? Yeah, that would have been awesome. Um, and yet, what was I able to do in that moment? I was able to um, uh, think back to uh, the 800,000 word book, the Bible that God has provided to us that tells us about his presence and his love for us and his, um, uh, who we are and to him and so forth. And, and I, could, I could recall the verses I'd memorized about the love of God and the peace of God and so forth. And, and all the spiritual disciplines that I'd practiced through the years of prayer and Bible study uh, all of a sudden became ever more relevant. And Yes, I would have liked God to have held my hand at that moment. He didn't. And yet I felt his presence in the sense that um, I could go back to Scripture and I could look at those passages that encouraged me that God has not abandoned me, that I'm not alone, that he is there, that he is real, and so forth. And, 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 but those are, you know, sometimes those are dry periods that um, can generate um, angst and doubt even in some believers. And um, I hope the chapter in the book, which goes into a lot more detail, um, I, I hope that'll be helpful to people who find themselves in that kind of predicament. Yeah. And that's the one thing I really appreciated about uh, the book is you really make it accessible, not just for a individual to read it, but even to read it as a group and to have opportunities yeah, for discussion and things like that. Thank yeah. you. T tell us a yeah. little bit about that. Yeah, I wanted to create a, a a resource within the book so you don't have to buy another guide or something that um, has questions that could facilitate a group discussion. So if you had a spiritual discovery group in in the group in the church, that'd be a great just go through the book together. The discussion questions are there, and um, it's a ready made um, conversation. Or even even for a believers small groups, uh, just to walk through that curriculum and to read the book together and to process these questions, I think will deepen their faith. And also my hope is motivate them to be more willing to reach out to others as well. Yeah, that's really good. So last question for you. Um, how, you know what it's like being a pastor on Monday morning, you know, you sort of wake yeah. up and you know, whether there was 10 inches of snow or, right. you know, it was a gloomy day and people decided not to come and pastors might be feeling kind of discouraged today. How, how, yeah. how would you encourage a pastor today? Man. I, I'll tell you this. I've been a teaching pastor at three major churches. I watch what senior pastors do. I could never do it. I am not gifted as a senior to be a senior pastor. And I have watched some of the great pastors of our generation as they do what they do. And I thank God for the way he has gifted them, for the way that he encourages them, for the way that he... Um, um, uh, takes them through these challenges of being a pastor of a church. People who sit in the congregation have no conception of what is involved in being a pastor of a church. I'm not saying that in a negative way. They just have no way of knowing. And if they did, I think their whole perception, their whole attitude would be, would be changed. Um, it is one of the most demanding roles that anybody can have. Um, and, and pastors are the hardest working group of people that I've ever encountered. And I watch from afar uh, as pastors do their thing, and I'm in awe of it. And I just want to encourage them and to say, you know, what you do is unique. It is powerful. It is life-changing. It is impacting people in a way that you will never even know until you get to eternity. And um, I know it can be frustrating. I know you, you want to pull your hair out half the time. but doggone it, those of us who are in the pews 
um, are benefiting from your perseverance, from your uh, faithfulness to God, from your uh, proclamation of the gospel and your, your teachings. Um, don't give up. Don't give up. Um, we, we're not worthy of, of the work that you do to lead your church. We really aren't. And, and yet, you know what? God's called you to that role. What a privilege. What a privilege to be the pastor of a local church. That is just uh, the pinnacle. And, you know, I say that as someone, as I say, who, who watches kind of as a, a teaching pastor is the easiest role in the church. You know, so I would teach 12 times a year. Oh, how hard can that be? You know, that's like, seriously, that's what you do? Well, yeah, I did for a while, and I'm kind of embarrassed by how easy it was. But I watch the pastors, and I go, my goodness, that is inspiring, and that is motivating to me to watch them do what they do. And I would say, just don't give up. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Monday Morning Pastor Podcast. This podcast is produced by Joel Embound at On a Limb Productions. Uh, he is ready and available for any of your podcast, video, or creatively telling your story needs. Also, if you're looking to grow in your leadership, Kairos Partnerships offers several free resources to help you do that on a weekly basis. We encourage you to follow us at Kairos Partnerships on Facebook and Instagram. And subscribe to our weekly newsletter that J.R. Briggs writes weekly called Five Things in Five Minutes. You can find the link in the show notes to subscribe. We highly recommend it. And lastly, if this podcast has added value to your ministry, we ask that you would leave us a review on whatever platform you are downloading us on. Uh, and we ask that you would share it with other pastors. We're really hoping to continue to create a community of pastors that care for one another. We'll see you next week. Thank you.